We're going to open to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. There are some people who think that Christians are people who think that they are better than other people. And in fact, some Christians, some people who call themselves Christians seem to act that way and think that way. But that is not the way that the Bible paints our Christian heroes even. This morning, I welcome you to take notice of your 12 apostles. Take notice of these men who laid the very foundation of our church. One of them has already proven not to be a true disciple after all, and that's why I referred to people who call themselves Christians. But even of those 11 who proved to be genuine, listen to the way our Lord speaks to them in this text. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For I say, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Good old Peter. you got to love him, right? And be maybe exasperated with him at the same time. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping. 
for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In this text, there are two contrasting groups of people and two contrasting responses and reactions to the impending arrest and crucifixion of our Lord. First of all, we see our Savior. Uh, excuse me, first of all, we see the disciples, the, uh, the Lord's apostles. And we see that the apostles experienced a grave spiritual failure. And just like was true of Jesus' very first disciples, it is sadly so often true of his disciples today, find themselves failing there in their moment of trial. Earlier, I said that Christians aren't Christians because they're inherently better than non-Christians, and the Bible makes it clear the failings of our great forefathers, the sins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses and Elijah and the failings of Peter and James and John. Christians are justified not on the basis of their own behavior, but on the basis of the actions of their representative. This is why the Reformer said, that a person can be simultaneously a sinner and righteous. A sinner in his natural self, in his natural state, but justified in Christ. And this is what we see illustrated in this text. Justified men, righteous, holy men. And yet we are very candidly given a glimpse into the moment of one of their greatest failures of faith. It was after the Passover meal. We read about that last Lord's Day. and This text says that they sang a hymn after the Passover, which is probably from the Hallel, which is for us Psalms 113 to 118. They sang a psalm, they sang a hymn, and they went out. They made their way from the upper room across the city of Old Jerusalem and up to the Temple Mount. And somewhere there in that temple area, Jesus taught them and he prayed with them, as John records. And, uh, and then he makes his way along with them out the eastern gate and across the valley and up onto the mountain that overlooks the city of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And there in a garden, probably an olive-walled olive garden there, Jesus and his disciples uh, gathered for prayer. This was probably a favorite spot where they often were known to gather. And there Jesus makes a prediction. And just imagine the Lord, your Lord, coming to you with these words and how 
hard it would hit. He says to them, because of me, tonight you will all fall away. Now the word fall away here, if you just transliterated the Greek word, just kind of put it straight into English, it would, it would be the word to, uh, to be scandalized. It's actually the word for a, uh, a stick that was the trigger for some kind of trap or snare, usually to catch an animal. What Jesus is saying here that his arrest and his death and all of the fear that's going to come in their heart, this, all that's going to happen to him, I should say, is the trigger that's going to ensnare them in faithless fear and abandonment of their Savior. And he asserts to them that this is actually going to be in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 13, where the Lord Jehovah says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. God says that the shepherd, this is from Zechariah 13, verse 7, that the shepherd is the one who, quote, stands next to me. Literally, he is my associate. He's my companion. He's my fellow. This is the shepherd of my sheep. Of course, in another passage, the Lord says, I will be the shepherd of my sheep. So here is one who is beside the Lord, who is yet the Lord himself, who will be the shepherd of his sheep. This is the true shepherd, the good shepherd of God's people. And yet the Lord says, the God himself says, I will strike the shepherd which reminds us again that the crucifixion is an act of God. And it is an act of the wrath of God. The anger, the just anger of God against sin, but meted out on the Savior, taken by God upon Himself in the person of Christ. This was an act of God. I will strike the shepherd, and the, and the Scripture says the sheep, which Zechariah also calls the little ones in that text, the sheep will be scattered. Of course, Matthew has made much of that term little ones with reference to the disciples. They'll be scattered, he says. But in spite of that prediction, Peter, of course, says, not me, Lord. Now these guys might let you down, but I never will. Jesus says to him, before the night is out, before the morning rooster begins to crow, you will deny me not once, not twice, Peter, but three times. And it's not just Peter that's going to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. The paragraph ends this way. That all the disciples said the same thing. Oh Lord, we'll never abandon you. We'll never deny you. No, we we would even die for you. But the truth is, they all had a a higher estimation of their own faithfulness than was really true. And it's the sad reality of our experience as Christians. And I know maybe you have felt it, you've experienced it, you've been tripped up. You've been ensnared by fear, by 
faithlessness, been caught up in sin, in a moment of weakness, you acted contrary to what you believe most deeply. In a moment, you acted in a way that in your saner moments, you would look back on with shame. Every one of us can relate to that kind of experience. Jesus said, all of you will fall away because of me this night. Now this falling away or being trapped is not, by the grace of God, going to be the end for the disciples. Amen? Praise the Lord. The story doesn't end here. And that is such a blessing. And that's true for any true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Zechariah's prophecy went on. It also said that God's remnant would be tried by fire, but that it would come out pure. More pure and more holy, more perfect than it was before the judgment of God. And Jesus himself hinted at that in verse 32. If you look at the text again, in verse 32, Jesus himself hints at this better future when he says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So there's a better future for Christ. He's going to suffer crucifixion and death, but he said, I'll be raised up. He says, you will be scattered. But he says, but afterward, I will go before you to Galilee. He is not done with them. Aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus is not done with you after you have failed? When you look back on those times of which you are now ashamed, and he puts and he says to you, those are now in your past. I have restored you. That hope he held out to the disciples. He said, I will go before you. Which could also be translated, I will lead you. In fact, sometimes it is translated that way. I will lead you forth into Galilee. I will go and meet you there. And from there, he says, I will send you out to the uttermost part of the world. It will be in Galilee where the Lord will meet and restore his disciples. I will meet you. I will go before you. Now, all of this is similar in one way, but distinctly different from another, in another way, to what he said uh, to Judas up in verse 23. Notice again verse 23. To Judas, he said, He who, dips his, who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it, was, as it is written of him, what woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see a similarity with what Jesus said to Judas and what Jesus said to his disciples, the other disciples. In both cases, he predicts their failure, their betrayal. In both cases, he acknowledges that it was predicted by the Scripture. But with Judas... There is no expectation of repentance or restoration. And with the disciples, he said, I will go before you and I will meet you again. There are temporary failures of faith. And then there is, on the other hand, a kind of final apostasy. 
an abandoning of the faith altogether. It is that kind of final abandonment of any acknowledgement of Christ, any repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus, of moving away from that, is that final abandonment and apostasy, I think that Hebrews describes, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, take a look at these very sobering words. For it is what? I mean, that to me is one of the most sobering words in all the Bible, to read that here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible, he says, to restore them again to repentance. Isn't that a sobering text? That, it, that it, there are people for whom it is now impossible for them to ever come to, back to the Lord, back to their former uh, place of nearness to God. They have fallen away utterly and completely. This kind of falling away is different than the kind of falling that Jesus is talking about with regard to his true disciples in the garden. This is a falling away that is more characteristic of Judas than it is of Peter, James, and John. Someone who, as the word in Hebrews connotes, someone who was close, someone who was near to the Lord but who left him, who finally and completely turned his back on the Lord and walked away. And this, of course, is exactly what happened to Judas. But praise God that there is a world of difference between a Judas and a Peter. Amen? That even though Peter fails, even though both fall, one repents and he is restored by an everlastingly gracious Lord. And in fact, the Lord is not telling them about their failures. He's not predicting their falling away in order to discourage them, but actually to prepare them and ultimately to bring them to remember what he said and to repent of it and to, for, in order for him to keep them in the faith. John chapter 16 verse 1. Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know that image where where the, the wheat is sifted and the true grain falls to the ground and the rest is blown away to be burned. He says that's what Satan Satan wants to to demonstrate that you're nothing but chaff. He says, but Jesus says to Simon, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And even though Peter would momentarily fall, he will not be cast headlong. He will not be utterly cast down, as the psalmist says. 
the writer of Micah chapter 7, verse 7 says, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then he says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case, my cause, and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. And it's that encouragement, that that spirit of, of the graciousness of the Savior that I think sustained these men in the days of their guilt and their fear after their failure. And back in Luke chapter 22, Jesus, remember He said, Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then the next thing the Lord Jesus says in Luke twenty-two thirty-two is that when you have turned again, Simon, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail after you have turned again. I wonder if it was those words that stuck in Peter's mind in those days Uh, and moments after he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ as he went out and he was weeping bitterly and he remembered those words, after you have turned again. And he just held on to those for all his hope and all his life. After you have turned again. After you have turned again. Oh Lord, forgive me. What have I done? Turn my heart. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Make me new again. It is those words, I think, that gave Hope, after you have turned again, Jesus said, then strengthen your brothers. And he would. And you know, I think it's always those Christians who know their own failures who are best able to help strengthen their brothers and sisters after God has restored them. Those people who know that their own nature is prone to failure, but that the Savior is faithful are the most earnest in the proclamation of the good news. And after, you see this in David's life, after his great sins, he repents of his sin, and that record of his repentance is found in Psalm 51. And here's the way he ends. Oh Lord, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then look what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I say it again. It's those people who know their sinfulness and know the grace and the wonder of the gospel who are the most earnest in the proclamation of the good news of forgiveness in Jesus. Peter would fall, but by the merciful intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would not fall for good. He would be upheld. And Christ prayed not only for Peter that he would not utterly fall away, but for the rest of his disciples. You see that in John's Gospel in chapter 17. Beginning in verse 11, Jesus was praying to God the Father and He says to the Father, I am no longer in the world, but they, my disciples, are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. 
And then he makes this petition of the Lord. Keep them. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that is Judas, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The Lord Jesus prayed for those men. He prays for Peter. Satan desires to have him, to sift him, but I prayed that your faith would not fail. And then he says to all the disciples, he prays for them to the Heavenly Father that God would keep them just like he has kept them, that not one of those who truly belong to him would be lost. And I want to tell you that every moment that goes by and every day that goes by that you are still a believer, it is owing to the intercession of your Savior in heaven who is pleading his blood and his righteousness on your behalf, and that the Lord would continue to hold you, to keep you. You would not grow hard and cold and apathetic and walk away from your faith and walk away because things get really hard and you get really fearful and things don't make sense. Oh, blessed Savior, blessed Savior who's interceding on your behalf, just like you prayed for dear Peter and James, and John, and all of the other disciples. What a Savior we have. The second paragraph in this text records Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And their supposed prayer, where we see their continued failure, really. He leaves the eight disciples behind. And he takes Peter and James and John with him. The Bible says, and he tells them, pray that you would not give in to temptation. And I tell you, that's the way it is for all of us, right? It is so important that we be prayerful, drawing near to the Lord, that He would deliver us from utterly falling, failing, going into temptation. Oh, deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus leaves Peter, James, and John there, and he goes a little bit further. A stone's throw, one of the other Gospels says, and he prays alone there. And three times he returns back to the disciples, and every time he finds them what? Finds them asleep. How often is that characteristic of God's people today? Sometimes, literally, sit down to pray, find ourselves dozing. But surely, spiritually, metaphorically, we find ourselves drowsy, spiritually lethargic in prayer. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our initial enthusiasm to do right to get up and read the Word, to pray, to witness to the lost, to do the work that God has given us to do with all of our hearts for His glory. And we find ourselves very quickly just with a lack of moral stamina, falling into a kind of sleep spiritually. Not very prayerful. And then we find ourselves slipping into wrong patterns of thinking, 
behavior, words, and responses. And we look back with shame. And so our Lord was left alone in the garden, the only one alert to the spiritual dangers that lay ahead for his flock, facing alone the greatest temptation of his life. And we see secondly the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ who was severely tested, but in his testing who proved faithful. And this text invites us to see, I think, a comparison between our Lord's temptation uh, in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and this time of agonizing prayer in the garden right at the end of his ministry. Because each, in each case, he went away three times in prayer. Earlier, the scripture says three times the Satan came to him in, in temptation. This time, he's agonizing three times in prayer. The temptation, of course, is to find any other way out but going to that cross, bearing the sins of the world. Luke records that just like in his first temptations in the wilderness, at this time also he's visited by a ministering angel to sustain him. And in each case, it is his relationship with God as a father and a son that is, um, that is in question. Remember the words of the tempter in the wilderness, if you be the son of God, if you really are the son of God, then turn the stones into bread, jump from the temple. And once again, Jesus begins his prayer, my father, and, and you can, you can, I, I'm sure that the tempter whispered into the Savior's ears, as it were, what kind of father would do that to his child? Maybe you've heard the Lord say something similar to you. What kind of father would let that happen to his kid? And in that moment, our Lord, I'm sure, was tempted tested and tried just like he would be all through this uh, trial and crucifixion. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself and save us. What is the nature of the relationship between Christ and God in heaven? And I don't think that you see the humanity of Jesus any more poignantly any place else in all the Scripture than you do here. The text says that our Lord began to be sorrowful and troubled, deeply distressed. He said to His disciples, My soul is sorrowful even to death. One of the other Gospels writers says that he, as he was praying, he was just sweating profusely. It was like great drops of blood falling from his body. And he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And he followed it up with, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup, of course, is an Old Testament picture of the wrath and the judgment, the just judgment of God. Jesus knew that this was his cup to drink. Not merely the physical suffering of the cross, but the bearing of the guilt and the sin of the world. The judgment and the wrath of his Father. The Father's wrath. Lord, if there's any other way, don't let me drink this cup. Matthew only gives us a glimpse of that awful agonizing in prayer. The writer of Hebrews fills it out a little bit more. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries. Can you, can you see the Savior? Can you see your Lord in the garden? with loud cries and tears streaming down his face. Flat on the ground, agonizing. He prayed to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Our Lord's struggle here, this is what I want you to see, our Lord's struggle was real. It was more real than any spiritual struggle you've ever experienced. And this text is an important text because I think it's an important evidence of the human will of the Lord Jesus Christ. The human will, our capacity for um, choice and decision, that human will is an essential aspect of human nature. So the fact that Jesus Christ expresses here a will that is distinct from the will of the Father though not in contradiction to the will of God, indicates that Christ, in fact, had a fully human nature. For the triune God, having only one nature, He has only one will. And this is important, I think, to us and for our salvation because Christ can only fully represent us as humans before God, because He was fully human. There's a famous axiom in church history that that which has not been assumed or taken upon oneself, that which Christ did not assume, has not been redeemed. It was, in fact, the misuse of human will in Adam and Eve, that separated them from God in the first place. And it's the renewal of the will in repentance and faith that is an essential part of the Christian's reconciliation with God. Since the human will is fallen in sin, just like every other aspect of human nature, 
the, then the Son of God must have taken up a human will in order to fully and truly represent humanity for our full salvation. He had a full and complete human nature with a human will. Think about, that, think about it this way. Um, for a person to bring a lawsuit in court, he must have what's called standing, legal standing, which is which essentially is proof that he is sufficiently connected to the case, that he's involved in the action in question. If a person who's suing, for example, is not party to actual damages from the action, then the case is dismissed for lack of standing. The significance of this is that our Lord stood for us, that he stood in our place, fully experiencing the humanity that he has assumed, that he has taken upon himself in addition to his divine nature, this full humanity, and so experienced the human state, the human condition in all of his aspects besides sin. And in perfect faith towards his Father and in complete sympathy with the will of God, our Lord and our hero did what you and I have utterly failed to do. That is, he exhibited a perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to the Father's will. He yielded his will completely to the will of the Father. They were in harmony. They were in sync. Where your your will and my will are so often out of sync with God's. And, And it's still being transformed. Our Lord intentionally, perfectly yielded his will to the will of the Father. He yielded the kind of obedience to God in which we have all failed in Adam. Were we, where we disciples fail to obey God's will, Jesus said when he came into the world, I have come to do what? Your will, O my God. And because he did so in his full and complete humanity, He becomes the head of a new and justified humanity so that you and I can stand before God righteous in Jesus Christ, redeemed in body and soul and mind and affections and will, saved to the uttermost by the willful obedience of the new man, our great representative head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a faithful Savior. Here are faithless disciples failing in their fear, but here is the faithful Savior. And it is because of the faithful Savior that those disciples were forgiven and restored and made right again with God. Praise the Savior. Run to the Lord Jesus. Put your hope and faith in Him that though we are a failing people, He is a faithful Redeemer. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for this.
passage. I pray that it would continue to have a good effect in our hearts. As we pray, you would lift up the Lord Jesus, renew our faith in Christ. And if there's anyone here apart from faith in the Lord Jesus, trusting in their own goodness instead of in the goodness and the obedience of Christ, we pray that you would show them the futility of that false trust and bring them to a true saving faith in your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. While the pianist plays.